Well, I just want to echo Roger's welcome. Thank you for packing in this morning. We're a little tight here. But it's, it's wonderful to have you here, and wonderful to have you here in the middle of this sermon series, where in this season of Lent, we're looking forward to the events surrounding Jesus' death on Good Friday and his resurrection, which we remember, on Easter Sunday. And this series is walking us through the book of Luke, one of the biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. And in this book, in chapter 9, we take a turn that makes Lent the perfect season to read this. In chapter 9, Jesus, for the first time, says he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where he would go to die and then rise on the third day. And so there's a sense in which what frames the passage we'll be looking at this morning is what framed it when Jesus told it. He was thinking of where he was going, and we cannot help but read this story, keeping in mind what Jesus would go on to do not many days after this. And the story we're looking at is the story of the prodigal son. This is a story that has impacted millions of people since Jesus told it 2,000 years ago. And I want to begin looking at the story actually a little earlier than the reading began. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to look at the start of chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. What kicks off this story is this. Luke tells us, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. What animates the story that Jesus tells is the fact that sinners and tax collectors were drawn near to Jesus. And the verb that's used there in the original language has a sense that this was ongoing. This was something that marked Jesus' ministry from the very beginning. He drew people who would be seen as outside the religious community. Sinners would be referring to people who don't live up to the standard religious morality that the Jewish people held, but tax collector would be referring to people who were seen as people who'd betrayed the Jewish people and who were working for the Romans. We read in verse 2 that at this behavior of Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes grumble, and they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. To eat, to extend fellowship. And in verse 3 we read that this is why Jesus tells this parable. So he told them this parable. You know, often I don't know what you're familiar is with this, how familiar you are with the story of the prodigal son, but often we tend to think of it as the story about this one younger son who runs away from home, lives a reckless life, and who's welcomed back in the father and to the father, and then we have this little addition at the end that talks about this other brother who was also involved in the story. And isn't it interesting that he has a very different reaction to the father's love? But we sort of think of it as something on the side of the main story about the younger son. But in verse 3 we read that Jesus tells this parable to them, to the Pharisees, to the people who are grumbling about the way Jesus welcomes people who were sinners. And that what, what that needs to tell us from the outset is that the character that we are needing to be thinking about, especially for those of us who call ourselves Christians, is really this figure of the older brother. This parable fits in a series of three about lost things. You have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and here you have lost sons. 
And all throughout these three parables, which Jesus, you know, Luke says this is actually one parable, it's meant to fit together, we see a pattern of something that's lost, something that's found, and then there's a celebration that follows. But what makes this last parable the most provocative is the fact that it breaks the pattern. With the sheep and the coin and the younger son, you have something that's lost and found and celebrated. But the reality is this last parable ends without the celebration. The son is still lost. The older son is lost. And this would have been provocative, I think, for two reasons. The first just being that it would be provocative that a Pharisee, someone who was a religious leader, who was ordained by the community of religious people, someone who would be faithful in going to the temple every week, who would be faithful in prayer, who would be trying their best to live up to God's laws, that that very idea, that Pharisee could be lost. Well, that would be deeply troubling. If someone like that could be lost, well, what does that mean for us? But the second thing that would have been provocative is the fact that because the Pharisee is not welcomed back and there is no celebration in this story, if the Pharisee is the older brother, it would seem that Jesus is indicating that the Pharisee's lostness is more serious than the more obvious lostness of the younger son. The most dangerous kind of illness is the one that you can't detect At least if you know that you're ill and you're diagnosed with something, even if it's serious, it's helpful to know what it is. But the most frightening thing is when you don't know that you're ill. And what Jesus is saying here is that there is a kind of spiritual lostness that can be masked. And for those of us today who are Christians, who call ourselves Christians, this should be very provocative. It raises the question, does this mean that I can go to church every week, that I can pray every day, that I can wake up each day and say, I'm going to live today trying to honor God's laws and yet still be lost. And Jesus Jesus is saying that is possible. What this parable is about is what does it really mean to be lost? And what does it mean then to be found? But what's encouraging is I don't think that Jesus wants to leave us in the uncertainty of knowing whether we are lost, especially if we would say we are trying to honor God and worship Him and pray. I think that's why Jesus tells us this story. He says of Himself in the 19th chapter of Luke, He has come to seek and save the lost. This is a Jesus who doesn't just love younger brothers, but older brothers as well. But what does it really mean to be lost? And with that, I want to move right into the passage that we're looking at this morning. Look with me at verse 11. Jesus starts this story. He says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, in Deuteronomy 21, there had been a law that laid out how a father would pass on his inheritance to his sons. It would be split between between them. The older son would receive the double portion, and the younger sons would share the rest. So with these two sons, what would happen is that the older son would get two-thirds, and the younger son would get one-third. But of course, it was assumed in that law that this division of property would happen after the father's death. And so it's very shameful and hurtful that we see the son asking for that inheritance, which he was entitled to, and yet asking for it before his father had died. It would be to say to the father, I want your things, but I don't want you. 
I want what you have to give me, but I can't stand to live under this house anymore. Let me go and enjoy these things in my own way. And we get a sense that this was a father who would be hurt by this, not just because it's breaking moral customs, but hurt because it was his son. And we have a sense that this would have been hurtful to this father because the fact that he lets him go, the fact that he doesn't disown him or beat him, but lets him have what he asked for, suggests that this was a father who loved his son so much that he didn't want to have him live in the house under compulsion. He didn't want it to be forced. He wanted a real relationship if he was to have anything at all. And so he lets him go, and we read then in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. We don't actually know how he wasted his money, Often we think of how the older brother later accuses the younger one of spending money on prostitutes and that sort of thing, but really we don't know. We don't know how he loses his money. It might not have been in immoral living, but he he wastes it. That's what this word prodigal means. It's someone who's recklessly spending. What we do know is that he ran out of money. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him in the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. We have famines in our world today, sadly. Just a few days ago, there was another famine announced in the South Sudan. And it's a horrible, terrible thing we see groups like the Red Cross or even the United Nations. We come alongside and we intervene. This was a time when those safety nets were not in place. It was a serious thing for there to be a famine in the lands. And we sense the desperateness of this young man who's lost his money because we read he hires himself out. And the word there in the original language is actually that he sort of forces himself, he he joins himself with this citizen of means to get whatever he can. He sent into the field to feed pigs. This would have been the lowest of the low for a Jew who had been raised religiously to see pigs as unclean. He's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. That's probably just garbage. That's often what pigs eat in much of the world. But he can't stomach it. He's wishing that he could. No one gave him anything. We read then in verse 17, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Then he forms his plan. I will arise, and I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Many times when we read this story, we think, here is the turning point in the life of the younger son. He's realized that this reckless life he was living wasn't what it was cut out to be. He's realized now that he had wronged his father, and he turns home in this posture of sorrow and repentance to go to his father again. But that that is reading beyond what the story actually says. Here, if we look closely, we don't really see any traces of actual remorse or sorrow at what he has done. What drives this young man home again is his stomach. He is hungry. (laughs) He has gone out expecting to make a fortune for himself. He has lived outside the authority of his father. But he realizes now this hasn't worked out, but what drives him home is just his hunger. He thinks of the hired servants 
who eat better than him, and he devises this plan to go home and to ask to be a hired servant. Now, that's not to be a slave, it's to be a craftsman, someone who could earn the money back that he had wasted to be able to pay the father what he had lost. And I think if we pause right here, and if we think about Jesus is telling the story to answer the question, what does spiritual lostness look like? We can get a picture here of what this one kind of lostness really is. This is younger brother lostness. I think we could see the essence of it if we had to put our finger on what exactly is the lostness of the younger brother. I think we would see it's what drove him out of his father's home in the first place. It was a desire to seek happiness and security and affirmation apart from the love of God, from the love of the Father, which we read now with eyes thinking about what Jesus was implying, what younger brother lostness looks like in our world and in our lives, whether we are younger brothers or younger brother-ish, <laughs> what it looks like is a seeking after happiness and love and security outside the bounds of what God has asked in a relationship with him. And yet the indication that we have, what clues the younger brother to realize he's younger brother lost, and what clues us to realize we might be in that same situation, is hunger. Uh, John Bellion is um, a well-known pop artist today. He had a single that hit high in the charts called All Time Low. And that song actually came in on an album which was entitled The Human Condition. John Bellion is not a religious person. He's not a Christian, from what I know. Um, but of all things to write about in this album about what it means to be human, in his song called Human, he writes this. He says, I spent $4,000 on the Mart McFlies. That's a kind of shoe. Spent $4,000 on shoes. And then he says, yet I'm petrified of going broke. And he says, there's someone gorgeous in my bed tonight, yet I'm still petrified I'll die alone. And then he says, I'm so sick of being human. How interesting. Of all things that John Bellion could have written about, what it means to be human, he chooses to write about this, this sense that we all naturally are looking for love and affirmation and happiness, and we look for that in things that do not seem to meet what we're longing for. That's what Bellion would say. That's what it means to be human. It seems that we are constantly disappointed, and Bellion writes, I'm just so sick of being human. I think that's what Jesus is saying, younger brother lostness is like. I think Jesus is saying that's what all of us start as. But as we see in this story, that's not where Jesus would want to leave us. How does the father respond? Verse 20 this young man arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. What would have been expected in his return, there was actually a Jewish ceremony where they would formally, when they realized a young man like this had lost his, his inheritance to Gentiles, they would come outside the city. They wouldn't even let him come in. They'd take a big pot and they would throw it on the ground, and it would symbolize how he was now cut off from his people. And it was likely they wouldn't even let him come into the village for the shame that he had brought on his father. 
They might even pick up stones to chase him away. If they did let him in to see his father, he'd probably have to wait outside the gate of his home for a number of hours. The father might finally come out, and he would be expected to grovel and apologize for every single thing he had done. But that's not how the father responds here. We read that the father saw him while he was a long way off. Presumably the father had been waiting for him to come home all along. We see that the father felt compassion. That's the strongest language in the Greek that could have been used to talk about what the father felt. It means he was, he was torn to his guts when he saw his younger son coming home. And then he did something that would have been very unbecoming of a first century patriarch. He runs to his son. And the word there in the Greek is the word for raced. He put his sandals on and he ran. And in this Middle Eastern Jewish culture, children ran, women sometimes ran, but patriarchs do not run. This man probably hadn't run for 40 years. <laughs> Part of that was because when you ran with big robes, you had to lift them up, you kind of had to waddle, you had to show your legs. In a way, we can imagine if this scene really happened, there'd be a crowd of people following the father out wondering what was going on and seeing what this shameful man was doing. But here we begin to get a picture that what the father would have been doing was taking on the shame that would have been due to the son, drawing the attention, drawing the crowds to him. We read that he embraces him, and that in the Greek he literally fell on his neck and he kissed him. And that's not just the the formal kind of kissing that men, older men would do to welcome one another. This is a tender kissing, a repeated kissing, not becoming, again, shameful for a father to do. We can imagine this was not maybe the moment the son expected either. And I think we know this from the way the son changes his speech. What do I mean by that? Look with me at verse 21. We read, After he's been embraced by his father... The son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, often we read this parable, if you're familiar with it, we can think sometimes he starts to make his speech. He uses those same words. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then we think the father must cut him off. He doesn't have time to get to the offer he was going to make about living as a hired servant and making back the money that um, he had owed to his father. But in reality, that's, that's, that's something that is not necessarily in this text. I think what really is going on here is that it's in the arms of the father when his father embraces him at great cost to his social standing and the pain that this young man had caused him. When the father embraces him before a single change has happened in his life, I think he begins to realize that what was really broken, what was really lost, was not the inheritance he'd wasted, but the relationship with the father that that was what was the real problem was all along. That was the deepest wrong that had happened, was that he had broken away from the father who loved him. And so in his confession, it ends right there. He puts himself into his father's hands. He acknowledges the ways that he has been far from him. 
but he leaves it off there. And the father, instead of pouring on the shame that might have been expected, brings him honor. He brings him the best robe. That would probably have been one of his own robes. He doesn't want the son to bear the disdain of the community that would have shamed him. He, Once he puts the robe on him, he is now treated as an equal with the father. He gives him the ring. That was probably the signet ring, which gave him the authority to sign and seal documents on behalf of the family. He's given shoes. Slaves went barefoot, but sons wore shoes. And the fattened calf, the most prized possession of the family, is killed. And they eat and celebrate. This is the picture that Jesus is giving of how he has received people who are far from God. Jesus is saying, this is the kind of ministry I'm interested in doing. It was the kind of ministry that made the Pharisees grumble, the religious people of the day. It made them grumble, and we see that reflected in the way the older son responds. Look with me at verse 25. The older son was in the field, and when he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Because it was a fattened calf killed, that could probably feed a couple hundred people. This is a big party that was thrown. Probably was music and dancing that could be heard for quite a ways. This servant was probably one, maybe of the younger boys in the family, who was maybe outside enjoying the music from, and maybe even dancing from outside where the party was taking place. This is the person the younger, the older brother speaks to. And here's what he learns from him. The young man says, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But then we read, the older son was angry and refused to go in. Now we might think, why was the older son angry? I think that there are three things that this passage would suggest, three reasons why. One, as we spoke about at the beginning, there was a pattern for dividing inheritance. The one-third had gone to the younger son, and now all that was left, presumably, belonged to the older son, which means that this party was on his dime. That fattened calf, that was his. So here's this party being thrown with his money on his dime, the second thing that probably would have upset him was that in this culture, it would have been expected that the older son would serve as the master of ceremonies to this kind of party. <laughs> He'd be expected to be the lead servant to serve the honored guest, which was his brother. And we have a sense that he would not be excited to do this, because already, even from the little we've seen of the older brother, we can tell he doesn't have the best relationship with his younger brother. And we know that from what happened at the very beginning. When the younger brother asks for his inheritance, when he breaks that relationship with his father, the father lets him go. But the expectation in the Middle Eastern culture there would have been that someone would have stepped up to mediate this conflict. How terrible for this actually to go through, that a younger son shame his father in this way and then be estranged from the family. And the obvious mediator here should have been the older son. The older son should have gone. I mean, you look at these other parables about things that are lost. The coin is lost. The sheep is lost, and people go looking for it. But no one goes looking for the younger son. The older son should have. There's bitterness here. There's a looking down on the younger son. There's a sense of self-righteousness. He refuses to go in, but we read then, his father came out and entreated him. 
It would have already been shameful for the older son not to go in the party. That's already shameful. Here's the father throwing the party, and the younger son is supposed to have this central, the older son is supposed to have a central role. He's not there. That would have been shameful. But here again, the father doesn't just run to the younger son. He also runs out to the older. He doesn't just take on the shame of running to the younger son and drawing a crowd behind him. He takes on the shame of leaving his own party and probably drawing the guests that had been there out after him as he speaks with the older son. And he comes out not to berate this older son. He loves the older son as well. He entreats him to come in. But here's what the older son says. He answered his father, Look. It's kind of like saying, Look, you. Not, no honorable title here, no respect for his father. And then he says this, These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he can't even call him his brother. He's so bitter towards him. This son of yours, when he came, he who has devoured your property with prostitutes, he doesn't know that. He doesn't, he doesn't know that that's the case. He's being slanderous. You killed the fattened calf for him. Verse 31, And the father said to him, Son, and that word again is more tender, Dear son, my dear son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. Could we put our finger on what the essence of older brother lostness is. What keeps him outside the celebration of the Father? We see it through the way he phrases his main objection in verse 29. These many years I have served you. He sets out this contrast. I have served you for many years faithfully. I don't get a goat. My younger brother has run away. He's wasted your money, and he gets the fattened calf. And behind this contrast he's making and the injustice he's crying out against his father, we see that actually the younger son and the older son aren't that far apart. What do I mean? The younger son is lost from his father because we saw he wanted the father's stuff, but not the father. And he pursued that lostness through his disobedience to his father. That's one kind of lostness Jesus is talking about. Lostness can look like disobeying God. But the second kind of lostness also takes the shape of wanting the father's stuff, but not the father. Because the older son, well, what he's bothered by is the fact that his stuff, which he saw as coming to him, this fattened calf that's slain, is now given to someone else, and it's not given to him. And the basis of his objection is the fact that he never received a young goat or anything small like that. What you see happening in the older son is what what he's frustrated about, is he has seen the good life that he's lived, the way he's obeyed his father, as what has earned and justified what the father now should owe him, which is the father's stuff. But we notice when the father points out in 31 that he he is always with his son, that for the older son, that wasn't enough. He didn't want God. He didn't want the father. And Jesus is implying that there is a way to be spiritually lost where we can be obeying, but obeying with a mindset of not actually wanting God, not doing that out of a desire of love, but because we want God to owe us something. There's a story that's told, uh, I think in the, in the Middle Ages, I think it's just a fable, but it's of a, of a gardener who used to grow carrots. 
And one time in his garden, he grew the most large and beautiful carrot he had ever grown before. And as he saw it and harvested it fresh, it said that he went to the king of his land, and he goes to the king, and he presents the carrot, and he says, I'm a gardener, and I garden carrots. I do this my whole life. (laughs) It's my trade and my business. I have never seen a carrot this big before. But I want to give it to you, my king, as a gift. And he gives the king the carrot, and he turns and he starts to go, and the king stops him on the way out, and he says, It is so kind of you to do this. Let me give you something in return. And he gives him a plot of land right by the palace with far more space than he ever had before, a space for growing more carrots and for gardening, and he gives it to him as a gift. But in the story, someone overhears what's happened, and it's the guy who's in charge of the horses of the king. And he thinks, wow, if the king is willing to give this man a plot of land by the palace for a carrot, how much will he give me if I present him the finest horse in the land? And so he goes out and he goes and buys this beautiful stallion and he brings it to the king and he says, I am a merchant of horses and I have found the most glorious horse in the land and I bring it to you as a gift, my king. And the king takes the horse, and he's aware that the what's going on. And he takes it from him and says, thank you very much. And he walks away. <laughs> and the, the, the horse merchant is standing there dumbfounded. And the king turns to him, and he says, when the gardener brought me the carrot, he brought it for me. You have come and given me this horse, but really, you've just given it to yourself. There is a kind of duty that we can have towards God where we think that we are doing something for him, but in reality we are doing it for him to owe us, to earn his approval, to earn his blessing. Even we might say the blessing of salvation. We do it so he owes us something. But that's not the same of doing it out of true love. The essence of older brother lostness is doing things for God to make him owe us his blessing. I just will say here, you know, I think at a church like this one, where we go through books like Galatians, which is all about how God's love is not something we can earn, and we can only receive it as a gift through faith, I think we can have in our mindset that we, we know doctrinally that we can't earn our way to God. We know this. And so I think, I find personally that it can be hard to connect with the older brother. I would, of course, celebrate if a younger brother gets forgiven by God. But I think we need to be cautious. The fact that Jesus tells this story and leaves it open-ended indicates this is a serious condition that we can sometimes not see in ourselves, that we're approaching God in this way. I think Jesus kindly gives us three warning signs, three indications to help us see if we are falling into this way of looking at God falling into looking at him as a master whom we're serving, a God who we're earning our blessings from. And the first of those warning signs that we see in the older brother is obedience that's without joy. He says, These many years I have served you. Here's an obedience that hasn't been from his heart to honor and serve God for who God really is. It is an obedience that has come from a desire to get something from God. When we find ourselves falling into routines of doing what God asks simply for the sake of it, but begrudgingly or doing it just to the very limit, just to the line that we think that God would have us obey, 
or when we do it just out of duty without delight. Jesus would have us say, watch out. This can be a warning sign that we're approaching God in this way. The second warning sign he would have us take heed of is the fact that sometimes we can look down on others, people who we see as more sinful than ourselves. Look at the way he refers to his brother, this son of yours. We've seen from the things we've parsed out in the older brother's response that he has, you know, if we even just took the Ten Commandments, he's broken the Fifth Commandment by dishonoring his father. He's broken the Sixth Commandment by murdering his, son, his brother in his mind. He's been bitter towards him. He's broken the Ninth Commandment by making up something he doesn't know is true about the way he's lost his money. He's broken the Tenth Commandment about coveting this fattened calf for his brother. He is someone who's also sinful. <laughs> he's just as sinful as his brother. But he has an attitude of looking down on others. Because really for him, how it would be so hard to bear looking at his sin if he really is basing his righteousness with God on what he's done. We need to be wary when we find ourselves saying things like, I would never sin like that. Or this person is so much less zealous than I am in my duties. Jesus would have us see, we can be far from God. We may be older brothers, or we might just be older brother-ish, as real Christians. But the third sign that Jesus gives, this warning sign he'd have us pay, its, pay our attention to, an indication that we might be older brothers is we have insecurity of God's love for us. We hear some of the tenderness even in the older brother when he says, you never gave me a young goat. Part of his upsetness that he's starting to show as he opens up his heart is that He's hurt. He feels the father is treating as a favorite his younger brother. He's someone who also, in a way, is wanting God's blessing. And I think in some way wanting his love. But he's insecure about it. And isn't that natural? If God's blessing on you will be dependent on what you have done for him, how could you know if you've done enough? A sign that we're approaching God in this way, looking to get things out of him, is when we find ourselves being insecure about his love for us. Well, what do we do if we find these tendencies in ourselves? How do we go from approaching God as someone we get something from to a God who we serve because we truly love and desire Him? The Bible says, we love God because He first loved us. That the starting points for our beginning to love God for Himself and not from what He gives us is by being touched by the costly love that He has already shown to us. That's where love comes from in the heart of a Christian. You know, a question often asked about this story is, where is the cross? The Bible says, it implies, we are made right with God through faith in Christ's sacrifice for us. That's a costly love that God offers, but where is the cost here? The Father simply accepts and loves the Son. He forgives without cost. But when we look closely, we need to see that that's not exactly the case at all. There is a cost to the Father's love. It's costly in the fact that he goes out and takes on the shame of the community to welcome the younger son home. It's costly in that he goes out to the older son and takes the shame of his friends and family to bring and entreat him home as well. There's the cost that comes from the broken relationship that he allows the younger son to have. This is love that comes at a cost. And I think it's no coincidence that, as we've said, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is on his way to bear the ultimate cost the cost that these costs in the story are pointing to. Because it's in Jerusalem when Jesus is on the cross 
that we will see Jesus being, in a way, the true prodigal son. The prodigal son who goes out, even though he's perfect in obedience, goes out and chooses to leave the blessings of home, to be in willful exile from God for our sake. In the cross, we see Jesus being the true older brother, who actually goes after the younger son, who goes after you and me at great lengths, leaving home to bring us back to the Father. And we'll actually, you know, at the end of this service, I just noticed, we did this at the earlier service, the benediction that Keith will say will draw on a verse from John 12 where Jesus speaks about himself on the cross and how as he's lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. I think what Jesus realizes is that what has the power to change us from older brothers to people who truly love God is by seeing and being touched by the costly, radical love that came through the cross. That's what draws our hearts close to him. And just as we close and ask the question, this is an open-ended story, what would the older son do? What would he need to do to get home? I think we see three simple things. I think we see just this very thing we've been talking about. What he would need to do is just like the younger son. He needs to let himself be embraced and receive the costly love of the Father. The love of the Father that's independent of anything that he's done. The the love of the Father that came before he changed a thing in his life. He needs to first receive that God has that kind of love for him and that he showed it to him in a costly way. And we see that through the lens of the cross. But the second thing we, we see that he would need to do as well, also like the younger son, is he would need to repent. He too would need to ask for forgiveness, not just for the, the sins that we've noticed have come through that he's blind to, but more deeply for the ways that he has wanted the Father's things instead of the Father himself. The way that he's used God to get what he really wants instead of God himself. And lastly, what he would need to do is he would need to go into the party. <laughs> he would need to join the feast. And I think there's something about that that's good for us in the West to remember, that this spiritual dynamic talked about here is not just between one of us as individuals and God. It's something that happens in the form of a community, a community that together celebrates. And what do they celebrate exactly? I think one last thing the older son gets wrong is in verse 30. The son says, When this son of yours came, you killed, him the fattened, you killed for him the fattened calf. The son thinks the party is for his younger brother. But really, he hasn't gotten that right at all. The party is not about the younger brother and what he has done. The party is about the love and the compassion of the father. That's what the celebration was all about in the first place. And in a few moments after this, we will be taking communion. And we'll be doing something very similar to what the older son was invited to do here. He was invited first to look at the provision of the costly love of God, which we remember in the bread and the wine, that help us recall Jesus' death on our behalf, his body that was broken in the bread, and his blood shed for us in the wine. Well, that's something we also do as a community, where we approach the table as a community of people all far from God and only loved and made right with him by what he has done for us and not what we have done for him. It's something we do with repentance as we recall the ways we have fallen short before God.
but it is something that needs to have the attitude of joy. It's a feast. We taste this in part now. And for those of us who placed our trust in Christ, we see this as the foretaste of the true feast that will come, the celebration that is not of our good deeds for God, but what he has done for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.